It is so good to have Jeff back in chapel. Don't you feel that way? Uh, Today, we're beginning something that is new for us in chapel. Uh, This is a dream of Dr. Doug Graham, and it's that we would start doing more series in chapel that take us through Scripture, and we're calling these our chapel core series. We're going to, every semester, start doing eight to ten chapels that actually take us through Scripture by following one theme. For this semester, we're going to be looking at the theme of the presence of God. And today, I want to talk about how the Bible sees God through the lens of one story. We're going to be in Exodus 33 and 34. And to understand this story, you need to understand that Israel had just been exposed. Israel had just been exposed. I'm going to explain that by showing you. Are we ready for this? Because our computer actually died during chapel, and so we're going to see if this works. We're going to show a short poem by Sarah Burns. She is a graduate student at Alliance Theological Seminary, and the poem is entitled Exposed. And that is actually the wrong one, so we will not do that one. I wondered. So anyway, we'll just stop that right there, Chris. Thank you. So Exposed is a poem, and I'll just give you some themes. It basically says that while we all haven't been exposed to COVID, COVID has actually exposed all of us. And it goes on to talk about the ways that we have responded to the COVID virus and how it's shown us what's actually going on in our hearts. We live in a time where our country has been exposed where our hearts have been exposed, not just due to COVID-19, but by the ways we've reacted to social unrest, the ways we're reacting to the upcoming election, the ways we're reacting to 20 and 20 in general, we are being exposed as to what's in our hearts. And the passage I'm coming to today, Exodus 33, Israel has been exposed by their response to the grace of God. It follows Israel's deliverance from the exodus, from slavery. God has delivered Israel. Why? Because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identifies himself as the God of your ancestors. I'm going to set you free. And it's not until Israel is set free that the armies of Pharaoh have been destroyed, that they have crossed through the Red Sea, that we come to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, God says this. He says, I want you to be my people, I want to be your God. I want you to be a nation of priests for me. What is God asking Israel to do? God isn't just asking Israel for a relationship. That is part of it. But God is asking Israel for a relationship that will represent him to the rest of the world, to be a kingdom of priests. A priest represents God to the people and the people to God. I want your entire nation to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You're going to represent me to the rest of the world. How many of you have ever seen a couple and you've thought to yourself relationship goals? You look at Hillary and Greg Leeper over here and you think to yourself relationship goals, right? This is who I want to be like. God wanted an Israel that people would look at and they would say relationship goals. This is who I want to have in my life. I want to be God's people like those people. 
So Israel accepted God's proposal. And God called Moses up to a mountain. This is why we get to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, because now we're going to hear what it means to reflect God's people. And it's somewhat ironic that at the very time that Moses is receiving this instruction, the Ten Commandments, which includes, have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images, that Israel is down at the base of the mountain waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And I'm going to say this in Israel's defense. If you are a people who aren't in your homeland, and you're simply camped somewhere, the longer you stand still, the bigger target you become to any enemy. The longer you stand still, enemy peoples can say, they're not going anywhere, let's surround them, let's attack them, it gives us time to get our act together. And Israel is waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and by the way, they've already had one attack in the wilderness already. And they say, let's go on to the promised land by ourselves, as for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. But we can't go because God delivered us. So let's make an image of God, and that will be the God who delivered us from slavery. So Israel has Aaron fashion an idol for them, and in the Hebrew it could almost be read, they cornered Aaron, had him fashion an idol for them, and when the idol was complete, they had a day of festival, worship of this new God, this new image, and now we're going to go to the promised land ourselves. How many of you think in that story God would have a right to be angry? Let me give you a scenario. Let's imagine that you are getting married, and you're getting married after a long time of dating. And by the way, my wife and I were friends for 12 years before we got married. We dated for four years, right? Just because. So you wait a long time, and then you get married. You want everything to be perfect. How many of you want your wedding to be perfect? Have you already planned it? You want it to be perfect. You choose the honeymoon, you choose the suite, you want everything to be just right. The wedding happens, goes on without a hitch, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And I'll tell you, if you've ever planned a wedding and gone through it, it almost feels like an exodus, and when it's over, now you've been delivered. You go to your hotel, and it's just you and your spouse for the first time alone in a motel room because you're Christian. You go there, and as you're getting ready to enjoy your time together, the phone rings, and it's the front desk. And the front desk says, I'm sorry, but there's some problem with your credit card. We need you to come down and work this out right now. And you're like, can it wait? And they're like, no, it can't. So you go downstairs to the front desk, and just before you get there, a tour bus shows up. And all of these people come off the tour bus, and they're now standing in line in the front desk. And you say to the person, look, I'll come back. And they say, no, don't come back. We'll get to you in a second. So you wait 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. The tour bus was filled with older people. You're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And finally, you're like, look, I just got to go. And they're like, well, then we'll call you as soon as we're done. No, don't call me. I will stay here. I will wait. I want to go back and be left alone. So finally, 90 minutes have passed. You work it out with the front desk. You go back up to your room. And there in that room is your new spouse with somebody else. And you say to them, what is going on? And they respond to you, you were gone for so long. And I didn't want this room to go to waste. 
How many of you would be mad? God had every right to be angry. He made a proposal. Israel accepted. Moses went up to the mountain. And the first time Israel had a chance to wait on God, they started looking for a way out. The first time Israel had a chance to wait on God, they started looking for a way out. Now understand, sometimes we have these images of God in the church that are just wrong-headed. One is I think sometimes we think of God as what I like to call as a people-pleasing party planner. Say that four times really fast. God is a people-pleasing party planner, and what God wants from us is he simply wants us all to be invited to his party. He wants us to be well-fed, and he wants us to have a good time. Understand that is not the God that we see here in this text. But how many know that if we accept or reject one image of God, we have a tendency to accept a whole opposite image of God? And sometimes people who realize that God is not a people-pleasing party planner think of God instead as if he's some kind of upstairs neighbor who's bothered by all the noise. And he's not just bothered by the noise. Turns out he's our landlord, and if we get too loud, he's going to kick us out. And so now our response to God is this, shh, don't make too much noise. We don't want him to know he's here. We don't want to bother him. And we kind of fluctuate between these two images of a God for whom we hold out our cups and we're like, I'm dry, you need to fill me up, to a God for whom we're like, shh, calm down. We don't want to bother God. God is neither one in this passage. And it's this passage that actually shows us what kind of God God is. So the first thing that happens is Moses goes back up to the mountain to talk to God about what just occurred. And Moses says to God, you need to forgive these people because if you don't, Egypt's going to hear about it and and you did this so we could be an example to all the nations. And God says, you're right, I'm going to forgive you, but I have a new condition in our relationship and it's this. I will no longer go with you to the promised land because my presence is holy, my presence is sacred. And let's be honest, if you are something created in the midst of something uncreated, there's always the risk that the uncreated thing will tear the created thing apart. And God says it's dangerous. That's why we have cleanliness laws. By the way, in a time of COVID, no Christian should ever again question cleanliness laws. We have cleanliness laws to protect ourselves from God's presence. And God says the people are too irresponsible for me to be in your midst because it's dangerous. It's like living in a nuclear reactor. How many know you would never hire someone responsible to work in a nuclear reactor? This is my cousin Rod. He's going to lick the plutonium. We cannot hire him. You would never do that. Israel is too irresponsible for God's presence. So Moses goes up to God to have it out. And here's what Moses says to God. God's response is basically this. I'm going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you anymore. I'll still send you to the promised land. I'm still going to make you my people, but an angel's going to go in my place. In other words, from now on, you can talk to me through my lawyer. And Moses goes to God, and we come to our first verse. Exodus 33, verse 12. And here's what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight. Now, if I found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He, God, said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, 
If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, unless you go with us. It is this way that we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he, the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. In this passage, Moses goes up to God in order to talk it out with God. Please don't send us from here, he says. Don't send us from here without your presence. You haven't even told me yet who's going to come with us. Now, if I've really found favor in your sight, God, if I have really found favor with you, I want you to show me your ways. Now understand, to know the ways of God are really to simply know how to live with God, to know what God requires and what God promises. Sometimes when we think of the ways of God, we think of something oppressive, but I want you to think of the ways of God this way. As a pastor, I've married tons of people. In fact, I've had the chance here at North Central to even get students married. You're welcome. Now, Whenever I'm dealing with a couple who's getting married for the first time, as a pastor, I would always do premarital counseling. And you know why I would do premarital counseling? Because I wanted to teach them the ways of marriage. I wanted to teach them about all the pitfalls they're going to face as a couple. Here's the things you're going to have to deal with her family, the things you're going to have to deal with his family. Here's how you're going to have to have discussions about finances. Here's what's going to come up sometimes in the bedroom. Here's things you're going to have to deal with because everyone deals with this. I need you to understand the ways of marriage, not because I'm trying to be oppressive. It's because I'm trying to empower you. I want you to know the ways of marriage so you can have a successful marriage. Moses says to God, if you want this relationship to work, you need to teach me your ways. Now, this brings me to my first point, and it's simply this. One way to see God is to see how God's people live. One way to see God is to see how God's people live. The way that God intends us to see him first is through the lives of the people who are called by his name. You want to know what kind of God God is? Look at the people who bear his name. That should teach you what you need to know about God. Look at the people who bear his name. Look at the people who live according to his will. God is moved by how his people live. Why? Because that's how others will come to know him, or that's how others will not come to know him. Understand, the reason a lot of people in our culture don't want to know God is because they don't like the people who bear God's name. Why does God care so much about how we live? It's not just because of what's good for us. It's because in how we live, they come to understand who he is. That's why it matters so much, Christians, how you conduct yourself on social media. Because it's not just about you, and it's not just about which person you support or what issue you're concerned about. It's how you're reflecting God. People learn who God is through you. One way to see God is how his people live. Now, God says to Moses, I will teach you my ways. And Moses presses further, and he says, then go with us. 
Why? Because how will the world know that we are your people unless your presence goes with us? One of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. How will they know unless your presence is in our midst? Now, in the midst of this, God says yes. And I want to highlight just what a big deal this is. Israel has sinned against God by choosing other gods, and God forgave them. God said, I'm going to send an angel for you. And Moses convinces God to reverse that decision, and you go with us yourself. We'll take the risk of having your presence in our midst. How many of you say that is a good day for Moses? I've gone to the president, and I've gotten more money from my college, and I got a raise, and I'm going to quit. That is a good day. And yet Moses pushes it a little further. And Moses says to God, now show me your glory. Now show me your glory. I'll be honest with you. Every time I read this, I see how many concessions Moses has won from God, and I feel like Moses might be pushing it too far. I, am a six, I have a six-year-old. I'm a father of a six-year-old. I totally understand what it means for someone to go too far. I have a six-year-old still whom I love who does really good coloring uh, 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 woolly mammoths. If you're listening, son, your woolly mammoths are gorgeous. He does really good coloring woolly mammoths. Yet sometimes he'll ask for something, and I'll say yes. So last night, son, it's time for bed. Can I have five more minutes? How many of you ever heard a kid ask that? Can I have five more minutes? And I say to him, yes, you can have five more minutes. And his immediate response is, how about ten? First thing he says, how about ten? We spend the next five minutes arguing over ten minutes. Where I'm like, son, you keep complaining, the five minutes are going to dry up. He pushed it too far. Moses says to God, now show me your glory. And in asking to see his glory, Moses is asking to see a tangible manifestation of God's presence. Now, glory is, in fact, by the way, this is the first time in the Bible the word glory actually appears. And the word glory is taken from a Hebrew word that means heaviness or weightiness. In, in our language, we might talk about it in terms of gravity or gravitas. And the way I could explain it is this. Have you ever known that some people just have a heaviness about them that other people don't have? And I don't mean how they feel. I mean the impact they make on a room. Have you ever seen someone walk in and suddenly the room stopped? Consider class. Students walk into class and it's like, oh, there's my classmate. Yet how many of you are always more aware when the teacher walks into class? Because there's a heaviness there, right? Because if the teacher walks in, all the lessons and assignments you're going to do for the day walked in with them. Or how about this? How about you notice that when the teacher doesn't walk into class? How many of you have ever noticed that? Because if the teacher doesn't show up, guess what? We're not having any lectures. We're not having any lessons. Class didn't come with them. There's a heaviness there. But how many of you would notice even more if in the middle of your lecture the college president walked in. I've had that happen to me before as a teacher, where I've been in the middle of a lecture, and the college president heard what I was talking about, and he walked in, and every neck in that room went, whoop! Why? Because there was a greater heaviness. There was a greater gravitas. There was a greater glory. The president walks in, and everyone wants to know if I still have a job. What just happened? He just walked into the room. How many of you have ever experienced that with someone walking in? 
When God's glory is known, there is nothing in the world that can compare to it. There is nothing that can match it. There is nothing that is as heavy as the presence of God. And Moses says to God, you have said you will go with us. Now, don't even send us up from this place unless you go with us. God, I want your presence to go with us from the beginning. And now, show me your presence right now. Show me your glory. And what does God say to Moses? God says, Moses, no one can see my face and live, but I will still let you experience what you can of me. I will let my goodness pass before you. Another way to see God, another way to see God is not just to experience God's people, it's to experience God's presence. God is infinite, and a finite mind cannot begin to comprehend what we're seeing. God is holy, and nothing less than holiness can experience God. But for us to experience God as he is, God has to equip us to do that. And this is what happens to Moses. Moses is given the chance to experience God's presence. And this is our last thing we're going to read today. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, The Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. When God reveals his glory to Moses, he doesn't just reveal his presence, he reveals his character. God shows up, and here's what God says to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. What does that mean? Well, I want you to understand this character description of God, think of it as God's dating profile. Have you ever been to a dating site? I'm the only one before I got married. I was on eHarmony.com. You fill out this whole profile. You don't have to go to a dating site. You're at college. Just ask someone out. So I'm, 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 you know, that's for all of you who needed that. So God fills out a dating site. This is his course description. This is how he wants to be known. This is his character. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, merciful, compassionate. God genuinely cares about us. Gracious, meaning he doesn't give us what he deserves, but he always leans towards mercy towards us. And that abounding in love and faithfulness, steadfast love, we have to translate it many ways because it's simply the Hebrew word here, said, And it's hard to define, but it means this combination of loyalty and love. God has a loyalty and God has a love, and they're all mixed in together. And the last trait that God gives us is actually a comparison showing the extent of God's love. God says he won't leave the guilty unpunished but will include the third and the fourth generation while he'll show mercy to the thousandth generation. Understand this. Punishing to the third and fourth generation, this freaks a lot of people out, does not mean that God punishes the innocent. What it means is that he doesn't excuse sin in families over time. How many know that God is patient and merciful and he will allow sin to continue for a time? But there still comes a time when God has to intervene. 
There may be sins in your grandparents' lives that you pay for in your life because it's what you've kept going. God will punish to the third and the fourth generation, but he will be faithful to the thousandth generation. He won't lend sin unpunished. He's not a people-pleasing party planner. But you will not be held accountable to the sins of your family. You will be held accountable to the love of God. Or to put it another way, Scott Hagen, you're not responsible for the sins of your parents. But the faithfulness that God showed to your dad is a faithfulness he shows to you, a faithfulness he shows to your children, a faithfulness he shows to your grandchildren, a faithfulness he will show to their children. To the thousandth generation, God is going to be faithful. He won't leave sin unpunished, but to the thousandth generation, God is going to be faithful. He's not an angry landlord either. He is a God on a mission who wants to partner with the people in a relationship with him. A God on a mission who wants to partner with the people in relationship to him. Another way to see God is to understand God's personality. It's to understand God's personality. This passage that I gave you, that I jokingly refer to as God's dating profile, this is the most common character description of God in the Old Testament. When Israel sins again in Gobbers chapter 33, Moses says to God, or 14, remember, you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. When Nehemiah wants to explain to Israel while God will restore them, he says, because he's a gracious and compassionate God. He's punished our families, but he's going to be faithful to the thousandth generation. The psalmist will quote this again and again. Psalm 86, Psalms 103, Psalms 145. Joel brings this up when he calls Israel to return to God. God will receive you despite your sin because he's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And when we come to the book of Jonah... And Jonah gets mad at God because God forgives Nineveh, a non-Jewish people who have mistreated Nineveh. Jonah says to God in Jonah chapter 4, this is the reason why I didn't want to come to begin with, because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And if Nineveh repented of their sins, you would forgive them because you just can't help yourself. It's how you are. It's your character. It's your personality. You can't help but be faithful. You just can't help it. God is faithful. God always leans towards mercy. Or to put it another way, and I want you to understand this, God is not angry with you. And I want to say this again. God is not angry with you. God is not looking for an excuse to punish you. He's already given himself a reason to forgive you. He's not looking for an excuse to punish you. He's already given himself a reason to forgive you, and that reason is the person of Jesus. That reason is the person of Jesus. Uh, I'm almost out of time, but can I tell you two terrible jokes? Two terrible jokes. These are horrible jokes. You might have heard these. One joke, both of them in Sunday school, two little kids. One kid is drawing a picture of God. The teacher says, what are you drawing? She says, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher says, but no one knows what God looks like. The little girl says, they will as soon as this picture is done. 
It's the first joke. Second joke, Sunday school teacher comes into a classroom, five-year-olds. She wants to try and get them animated and talking, so she gives them this question. She says, what has four legs, has a long furry tail, and likes to climb trees? And the students are all quiet. And she's like, no, no, come on, come on, you know this. Four, four legs, has a long furry tail, collects nuts in the winter, loves to climb trees. Students are really quiet. She asks the question again. Finally, the little girl raises her hand and says, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. Here's the thing. When we want to know what God looks like, the answer is always Jesus. There is no daylight between the nature of God and the character of Jesus. There is no daylight between the nature of God and the character of Jesus. God is not a judge who's wanting to condemn the world. He's someone who so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Jesus has to become the way that we interpret God's actions in our lives. Jesus has to become the way that we interpret how we're supposed to be because God is for us. Jesus reveals to us the personality of God. Jesus also becomes the way we enter into the presence of God. God in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, was a God who could be dangerous when you entered into his presence. But in Jesus, that presence of God makes unclean things clean. In Jesus, that presence of God makes the sick well again. In Jesus, that presence of God brings forgiveness to sinners. Jesus makes it safe for us to put our arms around the presence of God. Jesus reveals his personality, his presence, and finally, Jesus also reveals the people of God. And our worship team can come on up. Jesus reveals the people of God. In Jesus, all people can find their place with God as his people, as his children. Jesus gives us the right to call on God as our Father because God wants to be nothing between us and him. And through Jesus, we learn how to live as the people of God. The reason God wants a people is so that God can save all people. He wants a people that will reflect him. He wants a people that will show what a relationship with God is like. So let me ask you, in a time of COVID, in a time of the Bermuda Triangle, as the president has talked about, how is our church doing in this country at reflecting God? How is our campus doing at reflecting God? As we become disciples of Christ, people should be able to see the difference that Christ makes in our lives. And how many know people want to become like the people they respect? People want to become like the people they respect. And the most attractive thing about the people of God isn't just how we are as individuals. It's how we are as a community. People want to be part of a loving community. And when people become part of our community, they become part of the body of Christ. So here's how I want to end. Here's how I'm going to pray. And then we'll enter into a time of worship. But in Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need to see, to understand, and to reflect God. So trust in God's character Remain open to God's presence and be prepared to live as God's people.
Because the question isn't just how we can see God. The question is, can other people see God in us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, who is slow to anger, and who is full of loving faithfulness. Father, for those of us here who need to know that one more time, who need to hear that you're not angry with us, but rather you've already given yourself a reason to forgive us, God, I pray that we would trust in your character again. For those here, God, who just feel dry, who feel empty, Lord, I pray that we would remain open to your presence, that we could experience you in every way that you want us to experience you. And God, I pray that you would let us be the people that you've called us to be so the world can experience you the way you want them to experience you. May the entire world enjoy life with you because they see what that life looks like in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.